Good morning, church. If you're thankful that the Lord Jesus has paid your ransom, can I hear an amen? Amen. Amen. Let's open our Bibles as we continue our study through Genesis. If you grab the Bible and, and underneath the chair in front of you, you can open that up to page three. Should be page three on that Bible. And we're going to be looking in our time this morning at chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. As you're turning there, I just want to remind you all, uh, if you haven't been with us, as we covered the first couple chapters of this book, in Genesis chapter 1, God made heaven and earth, and he made man in his image, and he commanded him to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And in chapter 2, We got to zoom in and see God create man from the dust of the ground, put him in the garden, and form Eve from the side of Adam and bring her to him as his wife. And so in 1 and 2, Genesis 1 and 2, everything was good. There was no sin. Man and woman and God together. But then in chapter 3, we read about how Adam and Eve sinned and were promised a descendant of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent who had deceived Eve and led them into rebellion. But also, along with that hope, there was still consequence for their sin as they were expelled from their home in the garden. And so our passage picks up right after that has happened. And our passage covers the uh, events that have to do with two parents who have two sons, who are two brothers, who have two professions, who make two offerings to the Lord and receive two very different responses from God. Let's read the account ourselves. This is Genesis chapter 4. We'll read verses 1 through 16, but our focus will be on verses 1 through 8 this morning. The Word of God reads, Now Adam knew knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. But the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must master it, or you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. 
And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you, Father, for how these first chapters in Genesis give us wisdom and instruction concerning our origins, Lord. Not only our uh, material origins, how it all came to exist, but also, Lord, how we came to be in the place where we're at and our relationship with you and what our first parents did and how they fell, Lord. And yet how you showed mercy and grace and promised, Lord, to redeem and promised victory and promised to conquer through your son who would be born one day of a woman, born to conquer sin, to conquer Satan, and to save us and reconcile us to you, Lord, and to give us eternal life, allowing us to conquer death forever. God, there's so much that we can learn from this passage. We ask, Lord, that you would speak to us, that our hearts would be low and humble that we would seek to gather and hear and listen and believe and obey all that you have given to us in your word today. We thank you, Lord, that there's still life outside the garden. And we thank you, Lord, that you have not left us without instruction. So teach us, O Lord, how to please you in our life outside the garden. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Some basic instructions are extremely helpful when you are in a place that you're not familiar with, and especially when you're in a place that is not friendly toward you. Instructions are incredibly helpful when you don't know where you are, you're not sure how you got there, And you're not sure what you should do now that you're there. If any of you have uh, gone hiking in the Grand Canyon, maybe some of you saw a sign warning. Warning its hikers that if you encounter heat-related troubles, headache, leg cramps, nausea, vomiting, etc. I think these are people who are trying to uh, go from the top to the bottom and all the way back to the top in one day. These are the people they are concerned about. Uh, if you encounter heat-related troubles, headache, leg cramps, nausea, vomiting, etc., return to the river and with clothes on, completely immerse yourself 
and rest in the shade, hydrate with river water, eat and wait until dark or the following morning to then try to exit. This may save your life. Instructions are incredibly important. Thousands of people go out hiking and they think that they'll be okay and they don't know the territory and they're not familiar with it and they don't realize that it's not friendly uh, towards them. And a lot of them don't know uh, where they get lost and they don't know how they got there and they don't know how to get out uh, and, and they don't know how to get out alive. So some instructions like that are, are so important. Where are we? Where do we find ourselves? It's interesting if you were to just take a moment and think of what Adam and Eve would have given, what instruction they would have given to uh, Cain and to Abel. Can you picture the conversation? How do we, where are we, mom? Where are we, dad? We're outside the garden. How did we get here? Well, God made us and he placed us in his grace in the garden. And we did not listen to him. We disobeyed his voice. We were deceived by a serpent. And now we've been banished from the garden. Well, what are we supposed to do now that we're outside of the garden? Does, is God still there? Does he care? Does he, is he involved in our lives? Does, does he, do we still, is there still some way to, to please him and to do good, even though now we've been banished and we're outside of the garden? They need some instruction. How are we supposed to live outside the garden? Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, that the things speaking of these, these things written in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures, says these things happen to them as an example, but they are written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And so I think it's important for you and I, like Cain and Abel, knowing that we are like them in the fact that we are different than Adam and Eve and that we were born, and the place where we were born is outside of the garden. And the world that we live in still is it's evident that we are outside of the garden, that garden that was beautiful, that garden that was a, a place of peace, a, that garden where, where fellowship with God was, was perfect. We're not there anymore. And you and I know and see that the sin is running rampant in the world and it's running rampant in our hearts. And so without these, these, these passages, we wouldn't know where we are or how we got here or what we're supposed to do since we're here. But this passage helps us greatly. By looking at this passage, we can, we can see and learn from Adam and Eve and Abel and Cain that there is still a way to, for, that we must live outside the garden. That God is near, that God is close, and that it's still possible and we must still run to him and believe in him and live for him and seek to have lives that please him. And so we're going to look at three basic instructions that we can gather from this passage so that we will please God and do good outside the garden. The first one is this. Keep your hope strong. 
Keep your hope strong. When I speak about the importance of keeping your hope strong, I mean it in specific regard to the promise that God made to the serpent in the presence of Adam and Eve. If you turn back to chapter 3 and look at verse 15, God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so this is the key focal point when it comes to thinking about, uh, you know, what are we supposed to do now that we're out of the garden? You're supposed to wait for the seed. You're supposed to wait for this promised seed. This seed is to be your hope, your salvation, the one that you are not removing your eyes from, that your eyes are glued and fixed on God and him providing this seed. And I think that that's exactly what we see with Adam and Eve. And in this passage, you could just, can just think and, and, and imagine the excitement that Eve would have had knowing that God promised one of her descendants, a man would crush her enemy, the serpent. Her and Adam says that they knew one another. I'll let you guess what that means. And she conceived and bore Cain. And notice what she says. She says, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. God had commanded them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so what good news that they're still going to do that even after their sin, even after banishment from the garden. And there's an excitement that God's going to then fulfill his promise. He will provide a son. And look at how he provided this son. And I think that Eve's hope and expectation are extremely high. And when she says, and this is an interesting thing that she says, I've gotten a man. Usually you're expecting there like, a, you know, I've gotten a boy. You know, uh, I have, you know, I have uh, a, a son has been born to me, right? But you have an interesting statement that I've acquired or I've gotten a man. Why does she say that? And I think it's because her hopes are really high that this male child is going to be the he promised and mentioned in chapter 3. The he who shall bruise the serpent's head and the his or the him that the serpent will bruise his heel. And so I think Eva has kept her hope strong. She's waiting, she's anticipating and hoping uh, that her son will be that promised one. Now, as you know, in this, this passage goes on, that'll become abundantly clear that he is not that son. But also there's something interesting that we should consider with her expectation too and her hope in this promised son. And, and uh, not only that this is the man that he that is promised in Genesis chapter three, but it's also possible, I won't say that this is a case closed sort of thing, but it's also possible that she even anticipates that this son would be God incarnate, that it wouldn't just be a mere human son, but that even the Lord himself would, would take on human flesh. Uh, again, I don't think this is a 100% certain thing, but the way that this is phrased, if you look at it in the ESV, it says, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. 
And so in the, in the Hebrew, what you would have is, I've gotten a man with the Lord. And that word with is a small Hebrew p- particle that can be used as a preposition, meaning with, or it can be just used as a marker of the direct object. So it could, if we take it in the way that the ESV does, then that would be using it as a preposition. I've gotten a man with the Lord, the idea with the help of the Lord. Uh, and and, and that's, a, that's a good translation of that. Uh, but also it's possible that, that the, the, the man, she's further identifying the man as the Lord. I've gotten a man, even the Lord. And there's lots of conversation and debates ancient and modern, on this. Uh, but needless to say, she has a strong hope in God. And the way that you know that you have strong hope in God is when you're believing God for the things that God has promised. God's promised this seed, this Savior, this child of Eve. And we are to be people uh, who are living outside the garden eagerly anticipating and living by faith that God will provide that seed. And in fact, we know that as Christians, we believe that that seed has come, that that seed was given to us and that a child was born and that he came uh, for us and he came for our salvation. And he accomplished that through his death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our hope should be in him. Their hope was for him to save the world. Our hope should be for him to save the world, for him to conquer death, for him to destroy the enemy and the devil. Keep your hope strong. This is a dark world. This is a hard world. This is an environment that is not going to be nice to you. It's a hostile environment where the enemy wants to attack you and subdue you and ruin your faith and undermine your trust in God. You need to have your hope strong in the Lord. What else would you hope for? Imagine life without this hope. Imagine being banished from the garden without this promise. What hope do you have? What excitement? Why does it matter if you have kids or not? Why bear any children, Eve, Adam? Why do anything for God? Because you know that God in his grace has promised a son who will save you. And so keep your hope strong in that seed. Hebrews 11 verse 6 tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. And so if you're going to live a life that pleases God and does good outside the garden, you need to keep your hope strong. That's the first instruction. The second instruction to give to you that I think we can gather from this passage is to keep your heart soft. Keep your hope strong. Keep your heart soft. In Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, it says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. And uh, a lot of times that passage is just quoted in regards to like dating or something, you know, guard your heart, guard your heart. (laughs) The point here, yeah, guard your heart, keep it with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. It's, It's good to guard your heart. Uh, in, in, in that regard, but it's good to guard your heart in every single area to make sure that you do not have a stubborn, hard, unbelieving heart. 
that falls away, as Hebrew says, from the living God. So keep your heart soft. This is a huge and important task because our natural inclination is toward hardness, it's toward rebellion. It's toward not listening to God. It's toward not having a sensitive heart. It's towards just following this world and going along with what's around us. It's toward being captured in deceit and in following the passions of our heart in rebellion against God. You have to, above all things, your task outside the garden is to tend to your heart. If you won't tend to your heart, you'll do nothing for God. If you won't tend to your heart, you will not please God at all. You have to soften, soften your heart. Wake up every morning and plead with God to soften your heart. Cain's a negative example in our passage. Or you could say he's a positive example of what it looks like to harden your heart. A negative example of what it would look like to keep your heart soft. So I want to walk through three questions that will help you analyze the softness of your heart. And in your sermon, there, there notes there, they're put as in, uh, in, the, in the imperative for you to, to do them. But I'll ask you first, do you worship with integrity? Those with a soft heart and those who want to have and keep a soft heart worship with integrity. And that's exactly what Cain doesn't do in our passage. He does not worship with integrity. It's comforting to know that there is life outside the garden and that there's, God is still there and that he can still be approached and that he's still talking to, to man in this passage. And that these two brothers could come and to, and to worship him and give an offering and give a gift to God. And that's exactly what they do. This text mentions that in the course of time, they both had come to bring an offering to the Lord. And it's interesting that that phrase, in the course of time, sort of ambiguous, might not tell us exactly, uh, or it may give the uh, idea that, um, that there was kind of a, a set time that when certain amount of days had ended, this was their thing that they did. And so they went, and they would go, and they would offer a sacrifice uh, to the Lord. Uh, if it's the case that this was something that Cain and Abel were doing uh, with some regularity, some sort of time of the year that they, that they did this, uh, then it, it may be, and I'll just throw this out there, uh, that they would go and bring an offering to the Lord at the same time of year in memory of the sacrifice that the Lord had made when he slaughtered the animal and made clothes for uh, made, made garments for Adam and Eve in the garden. Possible. I, we don't know for sure. That would make sense for why they would want to come together and, and do what they would do on that day in memory of what God had done in showing them grace and covering uh, his, their, their, their parents. But however it is, whether it's some sort of explanation like that or something else, we see that they came and they brought an offering to the Lord. And the, and the offerings that Cain and Abel bring are, are typical offerings. They're, 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 the offerings uh, that they bring are uh, in, 
in line with what uh, that reflect the areas of their their labor. We we read about how Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and so as someone who kept sheep, what do you think he would offer to the Lord? He offered, he brought an offering of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And Cain worked the ground, and he brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. And so uh, I don't think that we should be looking for the, the difference, you know, as, as if um, Cain, you know, uh, should have brought an animal too. Abel brought an animal. I think it was totally fine for Cain to give out of the area of his profession. But there's, there's two other things, I think, that may indicate for us a difference that's, that's going on in their offerings and between these two sons. One difference is that Abel's, it, of Abel, it says that he brought the firstborn of the flock. Uh, when it comes to Cain, it just says that he brought an offering. Uh, it doesn't mention that he brought the firstborn of, or the you know, first fruits uh, a portion of the ground. It just says that he brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. Uh, also with Abel, uh, he brought the firstborns of the, fl- the flock. He, he brought their fat portions, which maybe uh, if you're, you're like my kids, they, they can't stand fat on, on meat and they want to slice it off and want nothing to do with it. Uh, but when the scriptures are talking about those fat portions, they're talking about the prime cuts, I'm not talking about the, you know, the, the chubby stuff that no one wants to eat. Uh, so this is a good offering. This is the best uh, offering. This is, this is uh, Abel coming and, and bringing this offering to God. And, and so I think there's something indicative of the quality of this offering that also then is reflecting the heart. Because as this passage goes on, we see that, that Cain's heart's not in the right place. And the Lord is trying to highlight this to Cain and as you, you go through, you see the Lord ask, ask Cain these, these different questions. And before that, though, we, we see that when Cain made the offering, did the Lord look at Cain's offering in the same way as Abel's? No. There's a difference. So if Cain's offering was totally fine, if Cain's heart and offering it was totally fine, then God would have looked at it with favor. But God does not look at it with favor. And Cain is aware of this. And he sees that the Lord looks upon Abel's with favor. And he's mad. Probably here a mix of envy, jealousy, shame, uh, but probably some blame shifting, but he's just mad. Look at what it says. It says, so, so Cain was very angry and his face fell. Literally, his, like his, he was burning. He's burning with anger and his face fell. I love just sometimes the way that, 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 that these, the phrases are put, like it's, it's so vivid. What happens when you're angry? Do your eyebrows go up or down? Does your mouth and your face go up or down? Your eyes go up or down. In your anger, everything comes down. And his face fell. And he's angry. And he's pouting. And he's throwing a temper tantrum. And he's mad. 
He's mad at God. He's mad in a way that's totally unreasonable. He's mad for no reason. And God tries to instruct him and ask him some questions so that he can come to figure that out and discover that for himself and then soften his heart. God asks him in verse 6, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If, if God thought that, that Cain's anger was justified, do you think God would ask Cain, hey Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen, Cain? God's going and he's asking those questions because he knows, Cain knows in his heart that he's wrong. And that his anger is unreasonable. His anger should have no place and it has no grounds. Uh, and so he asks him, why are you angry? And why has your, your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And so what does this make clear for us? Did Cain do well in how he approached the Lord and gave the offering to God that he gave? No. God makes it abundantly clear. If you just come, you come with a soft heart, you come with a humble heart, you come by faith and you give from that sort of a place in your heart. If you do well, will you not be accepted, Cain? You, you don't need to be, it's not right for you to be angry at me. I'm not showing any partiality. It's not right for you to be angry at your brother. It's not right for you to hate your brother. This is between me and you, Cain. And if you'll do what's right, if you'll humble yourself, if you'll come to me, if you'll turn from your sin, Cain, if you'll do what's right, will I not accept you too? God wants your whole heart. God wants your whole heart. This is the importance of keeping a soft heart, is that we approach God with integrity, that we worship him with integrity, that we worship him with faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, offers this commentary on the incident. It says that, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. And so I think that the author of the Hebrews is pointing his finger on something that is, is important in this passage to notice. Something was wrong with Cain's heart. Cain was not approaching the Lord in the same way that Abel did, by faith. And when you just think about this, could you, like, would you want God to, to want anything less than that from you? Don't, don't, don't you want God to want all of your heart? Don't you want God to, to, to say, no, that's not an acceptable way to worship me, so don't worship me that way? Or do you want him to say, yeah, that is an unacceptable way to worship me, but I'll take that. Go on, keep doing that. God cares about your heart. He doesn't want hypocritical worship. He doesn't want lips that, that, draw, that draw near to him, right? With their, their lips and hearts are far from them. He wants soft hearts 
who worship with integrity. Proverbs 21 verse 27 says, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent? And so this is just such an important thing. You have to pay attention to how your heart is interacting with God. If you want to keep it soft, you have to look and you have to see, am I approaching the Lord in humility and faith? Am I approaching him, you know, am I just doing the externals just to do the externals in order to be seen for doing the externals or because everyone else around me is doing the externals or because my brother's doing the externals? You need to be doing the externals out of the internal love and faith in God. God wants your whole heart. He wants all of you. And so if you're going to soften your heart, you need to worship with integrity. Secondly, then, a soft heart also listens responsively. If you want to know if your heart is soft or not, just pay attention to how your heart listens and how, pay attention to how responsive your heart is to the word of God. Pay attention to when others are trying to correct you and are trying to teach you or your wife is talking to you about something or your husband is talking to you about something or that someone, a pastor is preaching or, or, or somebody's reading the scriptures, whatever it may be, how responsive is your heart to God and his word? Notice that Cain is unresponsive. This is the sad state of his hardness of heart. And we see Cain's unresponsiveness uh, in, in two ways. Notice, I mean, just think, God is, how gracious of God, you guys. How gracious of God to, to not receive that offering from Cain, but then to go to Cain and when Cain is angry at him and to gently instruct him and to try to walk him through why he shouldn't be angry and try to show him the foolishness of his ways and try to convince him that, Cain, if you will just turn, I will accept you. What grace! But what does Cain do? Is he responsive? Do we see after God says these things to him, what kind of response do we see? Look down. Let's look at it again. Let's try to find Cain's Cain's response, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to his brother Abel, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. How'd it go with that talk? How responsive was, was Cain to God's instruction? as responsive as his brother's dead body. A key way to know where your heart is at and whether it's hard or not is its tenderness and responsiveness to the word of God, to the people of God who are talking to you and who are encouraging you. And they're saying, come, come along, put the sin to death, put your anger to death, Put it away. Don't let it fester. Don't let it rule. Don't let it have dominion over you. A soft heart listens responsively. You see, 
Cain could have said, God, you're right to not look on approval on me and my offering. I even thank you for not approving of my sin. If you approved of, of my sin, that would make you evil. That would make you less, and you would become more like me, and rather than me becoming more like you, and you would lower your standard of righteousness rather than elevating my willingness to offer and give to you what I deserve. God, I know you do not change and cannot change. You're perfectly holy in all of your ways. I know, Lord, that you are not partial. There's no evil with you. And what you have required of me is good to love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so, Lord, forgive me for approaching you in an unholy and faithless way. Please allow me to draw near to you with faith and faithfulness. Please give me strength and wisdom to put this sin to death and not let it rule over me. Thank you for not just wanting half my heart, but all of me, all for all, all for you. Oh, you got to wrestle with God over your heart, brothers and sisters. You need to wrestle and humble and try and plead and pray and realize if you go your own way, it will be the hardening of your heart to your own destruction and the destruction of those around you. So where's your heart this morning, church? Where's your heart this morning, friends? I love this quote from Derek Kidner. He says, regarding this passage, that the, the context is worship, the victim, a brother, and while Eve had been t- talked into her sin, Cain will not even have God talk him out of it, nor will he confess it, nor yet accept his punishment. Where's your heart today? Keep your heart soft. That is the most important thing for you to do. Confess your sin. Worship with integrity. Tremble before God's word. When, when someone corrects you, don't find the, you know, don't find the, the 4% of what they said that, that just is slightly off. And focus on that. Receive what they're saying to you. They're pleading with you. They love you. They're rebuking you. They're encouraging you. Be sensitive. This is the primary way that God is seeking to to speak to you. So hear his word. And if you're struggling with any specific areas, we encourage you to confess them and to share them and to let others walk with you in this. Work hard to keep your heart soft. So a soft heart worships with integrity. Uh, A soft heart is also one that listens to God's word with sensitivity. And the third thing here is a soft heart subdues sin intentionally. A soft heart subdues sin intentionally. God warns Cain in our passage of exactly what he needs to do. Cain needs to soften his heart. And subdue the sinful desires of his heart. But he's unwilling to do so. The Lord says to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? And if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. 
a soft heart will not be there playing with sin, seeking to open the door to sin, seeking to walk and play with it. No, here we see sin has a a desire that's contrary to man. It desires to rule over man, to subdue man, uh, to ruin man, to destroy man. And it's described here as crouching in a position such as a, a, a lion ready to devour man. Sin hates you. And it's at work to try to get you to entertain it and to submit to it and to its evil desires. The soft heart has to, must subdue sin. You must rule over sin. And so God's here pleading, explaining to Cain exactly what he needs to do. Similar passage we have in James 4, verse 1 through 3, where it says, What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. We have to fight, battle, subdue sin. Resting and relying on God and the power that only he could provide, we have to ask God for help and ask him for grace and ask him for wisdom and ask him for strength so that we can subdue sin and not let it reign over us. There's no temptation that is overtaking you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful God's righteous and faithful. He will not allow that to overtake you, but provide a way of escape for it. It's essentially what we see God telling to Cain right there. So if you've sinned against the Lord, if you've disobeyed him, if you've noticed that you've begun to let sin or the enemy take a foothold in your life by, by engaging in sins of the heart or sins in the hand in a way that's repeated, it's habitual, go and cry out to him and ask him for help. Ask your brothers and sisters for help. Ask, your, ask for wisdom to put it to death. Ask for willingness. Ask for a soft heart. Ask for, for him to do a great work in your heart to give you power and to give you grace over your sin. A hard heart lets sin run rampant in both its words and its actions. And Cain, in the hardness of his heart, would leave the door wide open to sin. And unwilling to repent of his anger, he would, his anger would become fully matured and grown and would bring forth death. Verse 8 says that Cain spoke to, his, to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. What's sin going to bring forth when it's fully grown and fully matured? It's going to bring forth death. That little seed, 
You think, oh, it's just anger. It's just anger in my heart. I'm not doing anything but, but hating this person in my heart. You need to put it to death right there. You don't let it rule. You don't let it reign over you. You subdue it. You put it to death because when you don't, it grows and it festers. And then eventually you act on it and you do hurtful and harmful things and even possibly destroy and murder. Ephesians 4 calls us to let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. A soft heart subdues sin intentionally. And there's just, it's amazing. You cannot be discouraged, friend, if you're here and you're hearing this and you're thinking, I'll never be able to do that. God says, do it, do it, subdue it. Walk by the power that God gives for the person who is relying and trusting on his promises and do everything you can to soften your heart and to not let sin reign over it. So a soft heart worships with integrity, it listens responsively and it subdues sin intentionally. And this leads to the, the third and last basic instruction for our lives so that we will please God and do good outside the garden. And that's to keep your head straight. Keep your head straight. I, I grant to you that this, this one's probably the, the biggest stretch of my points there. But when I say keep your head straight, what I'm talking about is that you need to be clear in your thinking. You need to be sober-minded. You need to be knowing what to expect. You need to understand what God has promised. And if we go back to that Genesis chapter 3 passage, do you just hear these words? You have to hear them. God said, I will put enmity. Everyone say enmity. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God has put what? Enmity. So if you're going to be the one who holds on to God's promises, is seeking to live a righteous life, who's seeking to keep his, his heart soft, you're the one who is seeking to hold on to uh, God's word and be obedient and be righteous, there's going to be enmity. There's going to be enmity between you and between those who don't want to do any of that. And so you must keep your head straight, not become delusional, be humble, be realistic, be sensible, understand where you are, understand we're outside of the garden, understand that there's no tree of life here, that it's a world full of sinners, and that there's a bunch of people who have enmity in their heart. And this enmity separates us and causes strife, and causes pain, and causes hurt, and causes destruction, and causes death. Cain spoke to his brother Abel, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 10, it says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one. Did you hear that? We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one. 
So if it's been promised that there's going to be offspring of the serpent and offspring of the woman, when John the apostle says that Cain was of the evil one, who is he saying that Cain was a child of? A child of the enemy, a child of the serpent. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And hear this, why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Keep your head straight. Don't be delusional. Don't think that you're going you're gonna to float through living your righteous life without any suffering. The Apostle Paul, near his death, Writing 2 Timothy, pleading with Timothy to, to understand that everyone who seeks to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You stand for the Lord. You wait for the Son. You live for, 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 for God in a world outside the garden, a world of sin, a world of darkness, a world of evil. And you too will have to endure enmity. So keep your head straight. And this enmity will, in some cases, rise to the level of your death. The Lord Jesus speaks about how, this is Luke 11, verses 49 to 51. I'll just read it. It says, Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel, that's the Abel in our passage, to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. John says that Cain murdered his brother because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. And when we look at some other passages in, uh, in the scriptures like Acts 7 which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You hear this continual issue repeating itself. This is the enmity. So it's so important that you keep your head straight and that you endure it, that you expect it, that you're ready to endure enmity and to put it this way, that you are prepared to die. This is not a safe world. Abel was killed by his brother. You think you're safe in your home. You think you're, you're safe with your, your brother. You need to endure enmity and be prepared to die. Until you have those convictions, then you don't have your head on straight. Anything could happen to you as you're following Christ. That's why Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. We are called to come and to be willing even to die. And if we don't die as a, as a martyr, we will still die here outside the garden. Because there is no tree of life. And because the wages of sin is death. And so whether you end up dying a martyr's death or not, you have to be prepared to die. I do not think that Abel thought 
nor do I think that Adam and Eve thought that on that day they would have one son slay the other. I can't imagine the hurt. I can't imagine the pain. I can't imagine uh, just how discouraged Adam and Eve would have been. Think about that messianic hope that, that Eve had for her son and, and, and the two sons that she has, both of them are, 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 are disqualified from being that seed on the same day, in the same moment, in the same tragedy. One, because he's put to death and the other one, because he's the one who murdered the other one. And so neither of them are this promised seed. Endure enmity, be prepared to die. But if you're keeping your heart soft, if you're keeping your hope strong, if you're keeping your head straight, if your faith is in God and you're seeking to please him and to walk in his ways, you won't only endure enmity, you won't only need to be prepared to die, but you need to also be prepared to rise. You need to be prepared to rise. That's the promise that Jesus gives to us. Jesus is that promised seed. He came and he was born of the Virgin Mary and that woman had a son and that son was fully God and fully man. That son was the promised one who would live a perfect life, who would have a perfectly soft and tender heart, who would walk in perfect obedience, who would worship with perfect integrity, who would subdue sin totally, who would, who would be one who would be faithful even to death, death on a cross to pay for your sins and to pay for mine. He conquered the grave. He rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of God and he is the one who will come again to judge the living and the dead. And he will throw Satan and his, and his workers and his seed into the lake of fire for all eternity. Thank you, Lord. And he will gather you who have believed in him, you who have trusted in him, you who have endured, you who have believed, you who have promised, you who, who made your, your, your hope in him strong, you who labored to have a soft heart before him and to do what he says before what anyone else says, that you feared him above all and that you were willing to be, to be uh, one who would be identified with him here in your life, making a stand for righteousness, unwilling to do and to follow along with the rest of the world unwilling to follow the course of this world, unwilling to follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, you said no. You said, you said, I'm following Christ. I'm waiting for this seed. He alone is my hope. I can't fix any of this. I can't change any of this. This is all too dark. This is all too difficult. This is life outside the garden and I can't jump over the fence and I can't get in. I can't run past the cherubim. I can't get through the flaming sword. But I have one who can take me there. And I have one who will raise me and who allow me to eat of the tree of life. I have one who overcame. I have one who, by believing in him and following him, I may overcome in him too. Oh, be encouraged. Be encouraged by the salvation that's been given to us in Christ be encouraged by the fact that he gave us the Holy Spirit, us who have believed in him. 
Be encouraged that the power of the Holy Spirit is at work in you, that the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you to enable you to bear the fruits of the Spirit, to enable you to cut off and to put off the the works of the flesh. And so you cannot grow discouraged. You cannot make any excuses that, oh, sin's just gonna reign. Sin's just gonna rule over me. I'll never change. No, you gotta go back and believe the promise. You gotta go stronger in that promise. You go stronger in your hope and you cry out to God and you ask him and you use his word and you use his church to walk in faithfulness and to put his sin to death as you live a righteous life here on the earth outside the garden. And as you live in this life outside the garden, seeking to please God and do good as much as you can with the time that he allots to you, which none of us knows. None of us knows how long we'll have. None of us knows how long uh, this will last for us here. We're not promised tomorrow. But each of us is promised that if we will overcome, if we will be faithful to death, then we will eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. That's Jesus' promise in Revelation 2, verse 7. So be prepared to die and be prepared to rise. I thought about calling this sermon like a survival kit or something like like that, but then I was like, no, because we're all going to (laughs) die. Lay it to heart. But death will not overcome us. Death will not hold us. We will not survive, but we will rise. And we will resurrect. And we will be with the promised son who has conquered our enemies and who will enjoy the full devotion of our hearts when there's no more sin. And when we have the ability to perfectly, wholly, always love God and serve him. And our hearts will forever be soft and tender toward him. This is the work that he is doing in us and will do for us. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. And we thank you, Father, for your church. We thank you for purchasing her with the blood of your son. We thank you, Lord, for calling her to live a holy and a pure life, even in the midst of conflict, even in the midst of enmity. May your church, Lord, be a church of soft hearts, of strong hope, Lord. Help your church, Lord, to have straight heads about them. And may we go out with only the boldness that you can give us through all these things, And may we preach, and may we proclaim, and may we seek to do as much good as we possibly can with all the amount of time that you give to us. This is your instruction to us, Lord. We ask for your help to obey them. In Jesus' name, amen.